couple places. Whoop, my bad, I didn't turn it on in time. Sorry, guys. Uh, to First Samuel chapter seventeen, as well as Second Samuel chapter number eleven. If you want to, you can put a finger in John chapter eighteen as well. Uh, from the turn there, let me say this: uh, y'all may uh, you heard that uh, Brooks, our worship guy, got engaged this weekend. Yes. Don't clap, yeah, because what I understood, she only gave him a tentative yes, that she's going to check with some people and get back with him, but no, congratulations to them. Uh, You'll enjoy, enjoy, enjoy this great thing called marriage. Uh, You'll have a realistic view of it about two years in, but right now you have an unrealistic view, which is the greatest, greatest place to be, but it's it's a wonderful institution God created. Uh, We're in the series called Tomorrowland, where we... uh, we're looking at this is just truth, and the truth is this, that the landscape of your tomorrow is shaped by the choices that you make today. That, that tomorrow is not shaped by tomorrow. Tomorrow is shaped today by the, the choices that you make. You see, we all want a better tomorrow, right? We want tomorrow to look better than today. And, and when it's not, what we do a lot of times is we, ba- we blame our circumstances. That, that just if my circumstances would be better, then, then tomorrow would be better. That's what needs to change, right? I mean, probably some of us right now, we can think of situations in our life where if, if and, and we say to ourselves, if, if this could change or that can change, this external set of circumstances, if we could rearrange those in some way, then tomorrow would be better. But there's a reason why we tend to do that. And it's really because it's a, in some sense, it's a cop-out, but it also allows me to kind of free myself from responsibility of the construction of my tomorrow land. Because if, if I can blame my circumstances and say, well, that's why, you know, I just need this to change or that change, then I kind of put the responsibility of building tomorrow land into something external for myself. And, and I think my responsibility now is really just to love God and it is to pray and to want my circumstances to change. And so that's my responsibility. And, and, and the responsibility of tomorrow and what it looks like, that's God's. And, and so, you know, God, go do something. Change this. Change that. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for that to happen. And when I take that approach, then guess what? One place I don't have to look at is meant me. I don't have to look at me or in me, or I don't have to look at the decisions I'm making, or maybe more importantly, at the decisions that I'm not making that I need to make. I just lay it at the feet of my circumstances. But the truth is, the landscape of your tomorrow is not shaped by your circumstances. Yes, they can have a profound effect on aspects of your tomorrow land, but that is minimal. The the large portion, the mass construction of what your tomorrow man tomorrow land will be is the result of the of the decisions that you make in life put them all together big and small it is the decisions that you make in life that is why when we come to scripture you find when God speaks about the pursuit of wisdom he often uh, speaks about it in very dramatic terms in fact Stay there where you are. Listen to this. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. We're actually going to look a little deeper in this in a couple of weeks. But just listen to the drama wrapped up in these words. Do not forsake wisdom. 
Now. He's talking about right now. Right now as you live, do, don't forsake wisdom. Do not forsake wisdom. And she will. Talking about the future. In other words, what you do now is going to have impact on the future. You shape tomorrow land today, not tomorrow. Do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her now. And she will affect your tomorrow. You're affecting tomorrow now. Love her and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Though it costs you all you have, get understanding. I mean, that's kind of dramatic. In fact, if I were, when you came in here, if I were to say, hey, do this for me. Tell me, what, what would it have to be? What, what would it be for you to give up everything to get? What would be there? If I asked you to do that and make a list, I bet get wisdom wouldn't be your top answer. It may not even be in the top five. Hey, it, may, it probably wouldn't even be in your top 25. And God says this, wisdom is so essential to what your tomorrow will be, will be, to your tomorrow, that whatever it takes to pursue and acquire wisdom, set those uh, activities up in your life, make those choices in your life. And the reason is that God gets it, is that the landscape of your tomorrow is shaped today by the choices that you make. And how do you make better choices? You get more wisdom. The, better, the more wisdom you have, the choices get better because you, you don't just make, you don't start asking what is the right and wrong thing. You start asking what is the wise thing to do and you begin to see what the wise thing is in a choice and in a decision. And as a result of that, you make better choices. And when you have better choices, you make a better tomorrow land. And so God is very bold and very dramatic in his challenge of our pursuit of wisdom. Because the culmination of all the choices and decisions you make in life, big and small, come together to shape what your tomorrow is like. So tomorrow is built right now. That's why this series that we're doing is so important. And last week was so great as we talked about uh, just going out and not being afraid to be great. That, that too many people give up on themselves when they have a vision that's too small for their life. And the response last week through through both Sunday as well as just all through the week and, and social media that I got back, it was just so, so awesome to see that God is challenging so many of us to not afraid to be great. And, and, and we're going to look at next week as something, just a, one little shift you can make in your life that will, that will really go far in building a better tomorrow land. But today, I want to show you something that the Bible has taught me about me. And it's also going to be true about you. And once you know it, and once you begin to, to watch for it in your life, the better choices you're going to begin to make, which will end up in a better tomorrow. And I'd and I set it up like this. When we look at ourselves, we tend to look at ourselves in the, in the context of good and bad, right? We, we tend to look at ourselves thinking, what are my strengths and weaknesses what are my good things? What are my bad things? What are my healthy habits? What are my unhealthy habits? And we have a tendency to kind of look at our life based in those kind of lists, you know, two lists, the good list and the bad list. Even when Christmas, the good list and the naughty list, right? We always look in those contexts. And maybe on a job uh, training or maybe you're interviewing for a job, that, that came up. You know, they asked, oh, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What is one thing that you're really good at? And what is one thing that you would like to become better at? We think in the context of two lists. And 
We have the good list, we have the bad list. So, and, and, and if we're going to be successful in life, if we're going to build a better tomorrow, then what we need to do is we need to work on expanding and, and uh, focusing on the good list. And we need to work to avoid the bad list. And we work on what these lists are. And so we go, okay, I'll make my good list, I'll make my bad list, I'll try to stay away from the bad list, I'll try to focus on the good list. But I will tell you this, as long as you think in those terms, you are going to end up being blindsided by something in your life. And it's going to bring some pain, maybe in your today, but it will bring some pain into your tomorrow land, and you may never see it coming because the likelihood is, is that it is not showing up on your bad list or on your weakness list. And we see this thing happening, and it's really at the source of the downfall of some of the largest characters of the Bible. And let me show you what I mean. For David, for instance, we're introduced to David when he was young. In fact, he was too young to be in the Israelite army. And in those days, you could visit the front lines because the front line may have just been down the block or it may have been just a city over. It may have been 100 miles away. You know, it wasn't very far. The front lines was close, and so you could visit that. And, and we don't really get that. It's been, what, since Civil War, since there was a front line that was close to us here at home. And, and, but then you could. And so David was too young to be in the army. He was just a young, young kid. And, and, and his father said, here's some bread and some cheese and stuff. Hey, go visit your brothers on the front line. Right? You know the story, right? And, and, and give them this and, and check how they're doing and come back and let me know. And so David shows up. He gets there. And he, he's seeing the men. He's a boy. He sees the men of the Israelite army all standing on the edge of a ridge, and they're looking down at the valley below, and David walks up and sees in the valley below, here is this man, this Philistine, a, a group of people that were known for just warring. That's what they were known for. They bred warriors, and here was uh, Goliath, a Philistine. He was probably close to seven feet tall, and the Israelites were not tall people. The Jewish people, Israelite people today are not tall people, and so to them, this guy was huge. He was a giant. And he's down there, and he is just mouthing. And he's saying, come on, somebody, send somebody down here that will represent the Israelite army, and we'll fight man to man. Anybody, anybody, bring it. And he is just mouthing, mouthing. He's not just mouthing them. He's mouthing their God. He's mouthing their nation. He's just ridiculing them, and he just keeps after it and keeps after it and keeps after it. And David hears all this, and he says this in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 26. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? If you write in your Bible, I want you to write this right beside that, that verse. I want you to write passion. Passionate. Passionate about that moment. I can only imagine the response to people around him. Some of the men that were standing there probably looked and said, hey, you know, this kid's got guts. Gutsy kid. Others probably thought, shut up, kid. 
I mean, we've got a serious situation here. Nobody's willing to go down there. He's down there. He's taunting us. And, and if we send somebody and they lose, it's, uh, we, we'll become their captives. We, every, the stakes are high right now, and we don't need a kid up here in the middle of this. Drop off your stuff. Go home. His brothers were probably thinking, David, get out of here. You little arrogant jerk. Go home. You're embarrassing us. David kind of feels the pushback, feels their, the people, several people's response, and he says this down in, in verse 29, 1 Samuel 17. Now what have I done, David said? Can I even speak? He then turned away, he didn't stop, says he turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. Again, Outside those verses, just write the word passion. Passionate. He wouldn't give up. You know, these people say, I'll just be quiet, kid. Sit over there. And he's like, oh, what, what, what did I do? I just pointed out the obvious. Somebody's got to go do something. He's going, hey, what about you? Who, what's going to happen to the guy? What will we give to the guy who goes and faces Goliath and, and eradicates this problem before us? He's just he's passionate about the moment. He doesn't, they tell him the same thing, just, and, and he, doesn't, he doesn't back away. Passion is too strong. And he finds the king. I mean, talk about gutsy. He goes all the way to the king. And this is what he says to the king in 1 Samuel 17 down verse 32. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine, for your servant, talking about himself, will go and fight him. That's bold. What we learn about David and what led David to do what other people wouldn't do wasn't his skill. It was one thing. It was his passion. For without that passion, David wouldn't have gone into that valley. It was his passion for what was right in his eyes, his passion for God, his passion for his people and his nation. It was that passion that led him into that valley. Was what was great about David is what made David a great king. It was what made David so strong and successful as a king and what caused him to capture the hearts of the people. Even to this day, David is considered the greatest king of the Israelite people. Their flag has a prominent star upon it in which they call the Star of David. His passion is what made him great. Now, fast forward. He's, become, he's faced Goliath, and he ultimately became king, and fast forward several years. There was a moment when the Israelites were at war, which was common during that day. David's king. He should have been out at war with his men because that's what kings were supposed to do. Kings were selected for, meantime, for, for partly who they were and their ability to lead and the ability to capture the people, which is what David did uh, for in his passion but also because of their ability to fight because they were expected to be out there on the front line that's where david should have been but he wasn't there he decided to stay home and men like uriah who was one of the captains of his army were out there leading for david in his absence and one particular night this familiar story happens this is in second samuel chapter 11 picking up with verse number two it says this one evening david got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, 
he saw a woman bathing. The woman was beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of uh, Elim, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now remember, Uriah is his man, his guy who's leading for him in battle while David's at home. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came back to him, and he slept with her. Then she went back home, and the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sleeps with another man's wife, the wife of someone who was serving him. If you know the story, goes on to the story, and, and he orchestrated events to where it would make sure that Uriah would die in battle so that David could kind of avoid the embarrassment of the moment. And ultimately, David lost a son because of it. David's Tomorrowland had unnecessary pain because of the decision that he made. Now listen. Do you know what was at the root of David's pursuit of Bathsheba? One word, passion. <laughs> passion. The very thing that made David excel at his finest hour, the very thing that caused David to capture the hearts of the people, the very thing that made him a, a, an awesome and powerful and one of the greatest kings Israel has ever seen was also at the core of one of his worst choices of life. It wasn't a good list of things and a bad list of things. It wasn't that he did really great when he, when he, when he focused on and expanded on and, and nurtured the good things. And Bathsheba, it was bad because he allowed the bad things of him to take over. That's not what happened. It wasn't two different things. It wasn't two different lists. It was the same thing. It was his passion that made him great. It was his passion that was at the center of his downfall. We go to Peter. One thing that made Peter so great was that he was so impulsive. Right? It, 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 it's what made Peter act when other people wouldn't act. Right? We see this on the night that Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and, and all that, and, he, and they came to arrest him. And when they grabbed hold of Jesus, it was Peter who impulsively reacted. John chapter 18, verse 10 says this, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear immediately. This was Jesus. This was his Savior. This was the one who he had followed. And they're going to grab him and just impulse. Well, everybody else just stood around going, what do we do? What? Peter impulsively responded. He always was the one to act when other people weren't willing to act. That was what was so great about Peter. And though Jesus said, Peter, this is not how it's going to go down. To me, that is one of Peter's finest moments. Because that's what you love about Peter. Later on, when people are standing around, it's Peter just who impulsively always responds when someone says, hey, you can't talk about Jesus. He's like, no, 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 I cannot not talk about Jesus. And he didn't hesitate. It was that impulsive nature about Peter that made him such a great and powerful force 
for the kingdom of God and for the new budding church. But go just a little bit long, uh, later after he cut off the year, and when everything was going chaos, chaotic and when you looked at him and you thought this guy was going to set up a physical kingdom and now he's, he's being arrested and he's being beaten and, and everything seems to be coming apart and it seems like the ones who are the foe have all the power and are winning and winning and winning. And someone asked him a question, remember? John chapter 18, again, down to verse 17. You aren't one of these men's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter, and he replied, I am not. And later on, he's asked again. He says, I'm not. And then he's asked again, and he says, Will you stop saying that? I don't even know this man impulsively. Without thinking what he's doing. Boom, boom, boom. In fact, he doesn't start thinking about what he does until after that third time when it says the cock crowed. And at that point, it dawns on him that Jesus had said, before the cock crows three times, you're going to deny me. He said, no, 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 not me. At that point, it says, he went out and wept bitterly. It was one of his worst moments. So at the source of his greatest moments are Peter's impulsiveness. And at the core of one of his worst moments is Peter's impulsiveness. (laughs) You see what's happening? Your tomorrow land is not being shaped primarily by the circumstances that come. They can be difficult. They can be tough. But they come by the choices that you make, not tomorrow and the next day, the choices that you're making every single day, big and small. And what we must all get is that it's not about our strength and weaknesses. It's not about our our good traits and our bad traits and making sure that we set up good habits and stay away from our bad habits. Those are all good things to know. I'm not discounting those things. It's good to know what your good traits are and your bad traits are and your good habits are. But there is a bigger principle at play every single day, especially when it comes to your future. And that is this. The thing about you that makes you great will be the thing that brings you the greatest pain. The thing about you that makes you a great success will also be the thing most likely that will be at the center of your downfall. Maybe you're someone who's very analytical, right? You're good at that. God wired you for that. You're really good at coming to logical decisions, logical conclusions. You love to take the data and analytics, and you're really good at that, and people come to you for that. People hire you for that. You have succeeded in that. You're just really good at that. And there's a really good chance that that thing about you that makes you great could easily become the thing that causes you to be too rigid or too unempathetic when it comes to the relationships of your life. And that part about you that brought you success maybe in business and in other situations is the very same thing that's at the center of your downfall in this relationship. Or maybe it is how God wired you. You are life of the party. Right? You love to make people smile. You love to make people laugh. 
You love to make people feel good, and because that's who you are, you've had success in business in that area. You've had success in friendships. People always want you to be a part of it, be around. People look to you, and you're always able to make people smile, and people praise you for that. They laugh. They give their approval and their adulations to you because of your ability to do this. That is what is great about you. That's what makes you a success. That's what people love about you. But very easily, there's a very good chance that if you're not careful, that thing morphs into a, a need for people's approval. Because you're getting so much, more than a lot of people, because you can make people laugh and smile. And all of a sudden, that part of you that just loves doing that is also the part of you that becomes so hungry for the praise and adulation of people that leads you to make some choices in life that brings unnecessary pain. I could go on and on and on with examples. But what the Bible has taught me about me And what the Bible, I think, will teach you about you is if we want to make better decisions to have a better tomorrow, it is not so much about making a list of good things and bad things, making a list of strengths and weaknesses. There's something bigger. It is about getting to know how God has wired me, getting to know how God has created me discovering how God has made me unique and what are the things that God has planted in me and skill wise and other things and perspective all that how they come together and to make me what I'm great at what I'm unique at what makes me strong and knowing that that what makes me a success also never losing the awareness But that is where some of my greatest mistakes and failures and sin will come from. And the reason why this is so important is once I know that, once I understand it's not about good and bad, it's about discovering what makes me great and embracing it and living it, but also being so incredibly shrewd to understand that is where the likelihood is my greatest downfall will come from. The very thing that makes me great. And the reason it's so important that I get that and I become so shrewd about watching that part of my life is because there is someone who's watching. And he will do all he can to discover what makes you great because he gets that is where he can make your downfall the greatest by exploiting that, by redirecting that to to cause you to make decisions that are not wise decisions and can bring about a painful or, destruct or disruption to your tomorrow land. Because listen to this. Listen to how he's described. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Be alert and of sober mind. That, why? You, you never have to be alert and sober mind of someone who's not interested in you. You have to be alert and of sober mind of someone who's coming after you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking, watching, observing for someone to devour. He is lurking around you, watching, learning. Learning not what your bad habits, learning what makes you great. Because he knows if he can manipulate that 
and move that in a, in a different direction that he can bring about your greatest fall. Because he gets it. He gets it. That he, if he can mess up your choices today, and the best place to really mess them up is manipulating what you're great at, then he can absolutely wreak havoc in your tomorrow. So here's your assignment. Find out what you're great at. Spend some time with God and just saying, God, help me to see how you wired me to be uniquely me. The way I think, the way I approach things, the way I interact, the skills, things that are just intuitive to me that may not be other. God, help me to see what I'm great at because I don't want to be afraid to be great. We talk about I don't want to have a small vision for my life. Help me to see what I'm great at. Listen, spend some time looking at Ask other people. Find those that are close to you that you know have your best interest. And just ask them, say, what do you think I'm naturally great at? In your, in your opinion, what, what is I'm naturally good at? If you would say, uh, you know, I'm going to be a success later, what would, you, what would not surprise you to say, oh, yeah, I knew that, that he'd be great at that? Ask people around you. Do what you can to discover why and what makes you great. What will be at the core of your success? And then commit to never stop watching that part of your life. Because you neglect watching what you're great at. At your own future peril.